Welcome to Scholastic Reads, our podcast about books, authors, and the joy and power of reading. I'm your host, Suzanne McCabe, Editor-at-Large at Scholastic. Thank you for joining us. How do we reassure children after traumatic events? In February, after the mass shooting at a Florida high school, Scholastic CEO Dick Robinson wrote a heartfelt letter to teachers. It read in part, Our society is being called to work at all levels to address our many challenges, including access to guns, mental health issues, and school protective measures. Forthright responses will benefit everyone and help make children feel safer. Still, after traumatic events, parents and teachers may struggle to help kids cope with fear and anxiety. Our guests today have lots of expertise and great advice. First, Dr. Jamie Howard joins us by phone. Dr. Howard is a clinical psychologist at the Child Mind Institute in New York City and director of the Center's Trauma and Resilience Service. Later, we'll talk with Julie Ballou, a fifth-grade teacher in Houston, Texas, and a top teaching blogger for Scholastic. Julie will tell us how she helped her students rebuild a sense of community after Hurricane Harvey devastated their city. First... Here's Dr. Howard. Hi, Dr. Howard. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We're very grateful that you're going to lend your expertise here. First, we know that the brain is about the most complicated organ there is, so hats off for studying it. (laughs) Still, there's been a ton of brain research in the past decade. How has that changed our understanding of how children process trauma? A lot of what we know about how kids process trauma is based on their behavior and their emotions. We do know from some early brain research that kids who are exposed to chronic trauma actually have decreased brain mass. There's been studies that show the brain of a typically developing child and a child who's uh, been exposed to chronic trauma, and it actually appears to be atrophied significantly smaller than the brain of a child who hasn't had such a disadvantaged childhood. Gosh, so what tips do you have for parents and teachers for talking to kids about scary events, taking age range into consideration? You definitely want to talk to kids about scary events because if you don't, they're going to get their information from more sensational sources like the television and from kids at school who might embellish or just have the details wrong. So it's very important that parents talk to kids, even if they're not exactly sure what to say. Um, Some rules of thumb are to be calm and to appear sort of in control or confident, even if you don't feel that way. And if you're worried, they'll ask you a question that you don't know how to answer. You should feel free to say, you know, that's a good question and I'm not exactly sure. And I want to get a little information so that I can give you the most complete answer possible and then come back to them the next day. Just remember that you do go back to them the next day. And then for the younger kids, um, when we're talking about violence, like school shootings, you, you really want to reassure them of their safety. I'm talking about like, preschoolers and kindergartners, 
first graders. Um, they they really think of the important grown-ups in their life as almost godlike, and they don't understand um, the reality of situations necessarily. They don't understand the limits of what their parents and their teachers can do, and it's best for them to feel like the people in charge are going to do everything they can to keep them safe. So you want to talk to them about how they are safe and loved. Um, and then as kids get a little older, you can start to give more information to them. So uh, third graders, fourth graders, fifth graders, they're still very concrete in the way they think about things. Um, so you don't have to worry about getting into large abstract conversations about things like mental illness or gun control. You can sort of stick with, we have some rules. People don't always follow those rules. Sometimes people do bad things. And so here's what we're going to do to keep you safe and um, focus on safety again, but with a little bit more information about what you're doing and what they can also do to keep safe. For older kids and for teenagers, they they do start to be able to appreciate nuance in, in these difficult situations. Teenagers especially will want to talk about complicated topics like guns and mental illness and how you can spot someone who seems desperate. And you definitely want to engage them in those conversations because it's very helpful for teens to feel like they're able to keep themselves safe. So there's a shift across development from kids really relying on the important grown-ups in their life to keep them safe to taking on the onus themselves and wanting to feel like they have an idea about what they could do. And the more that you talk about it and the more they mentally rehearse, this is what I would do, uh, the quicker they will be to respond appropriately in the event of a, a school shooting or another kind of violent situation. For the children who are living with chronic trauma or toxic stress, what um, signs might teachers be looking out for, behavioral signs, let's say in the classroom, to help these children and make sure that they get attention? There's a cluster of symptoms called physiological hyperarousal, and that's part of the diagnostic criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder. And basically what these symptoms are, are a hypervigilance, hyper alertness, um, being phys physiologically on edge because of a chronic fight or flight response going off. So kids might be more jumpy, easily startled, scanning the environment for danger. And what happens is these symptoms in particular can look like poorly managed ADHD or just poor behavior in the classroom. So it's important to keep in mind that kids who've been exposed to a great deal of trauma are distractible because of their heightened physiological responsiveness and uh, that they might not necessarily be willfully um, getting out of their seat or being disobedient. They might have a really hard time managing their bodies. After the school shooting in Florida, I heard a student on the news who was heading back to school say something like, imagine being in a plane crash, and then you have to get on a plane every day. What advice would you have for him and his classmates? That's a really great analogy. And ironically, that is sort of the way anxiety disorder treatment works. PTSD used to be considered an anxiety disorder. It's considered a separate disorder now, but it's treated pretty similarly. 
And that's not to say that he has PTSD just because he's been through a horrific trauma, because not everyone who has been through a trauma does develop PTSD. But let's say he did, the treatment part of it would be to face fears of things that remind you of the trauma. So we don't face fears of unsafe things, right? So I've worked with kids who, um, who've been exposed to shootings because they were out in a dangerous neighborhood at night. And I would never say you should go out to that dangerous neighborhood again and expose yourself to that because that's just unsafe. But if you're working with a kid who's afraid of a car because they were in a car accident, you absolutely would want to expose them to cars because the chances of getting in another car accident are low and you want to decrease that association with being in a car and being hurt. Same for him with going back to school. Chances of this happening again are very low. Um, so school's a safe place and he should go back painful as it is. And he might need some support and treatment to, to facilitate that process of getting back in. On a personal note, my brother was killed in the attacks at the World Trade Center on 9-11. So now whenever a traumatic event happens, like a mass shooting, I relive what I went through at that time. And I pretty much know what the families are going through. How can those of us who have experienced trauma sort of mitigate the effects of that endless loop? Well, first, I'm really sorry to hear that. That, And you bring up a really great point, which is that um, previous traumas that we've experienced can be brought back up again when we hear of another trauma. Um, we experience some of the same things, that shock, that helpless, horrified feeling. Um, and, you know, some, some people benefit from getting some treatment and some people benefit from talking about it or writing about it. The more that you... Um, accept a trauma and put it in its place in your life and understand it, uh, the better able you are to um, hear additional traumas and have less reactivity to it. On the bright side, we know that people pull together during times of tragedy and there are lessons to be learned. What are some of the ways that we can help kids build resilience after traumatic events? You know, after I think it was the Sandy Hook shooting, someone quoted Mr. Rogers, I believe, who said, focus on the helpers. And I think that is a really important point. Um, very simple and very helpful. Uh, so what, what people can do to build resilience is, first of all, put one foot in front of the other. Resilience does not mean you're thriving and happy in the face of horrific situations. It means that you're functioning. You're putting one foot in front of the other, you're going to school, you're doing your, your job, whatever that is. And then second, what can you do to help and how can you um, pay attention to the way people come together? Um, there's something called post-traumatic growth, uh, which means that after trauma, sometimes people actually experience personal growth and develop insight that they never would have had if it weren't for this trauma, not that it makes it worth it to have experience something so horrible, but there is a little something that can come out of it to help people heal and to even be uh, potentially happier, healthier versions of themselves afterwards. I've never heard that phrase before. That's so interesting. Kids today are flooded with images, whether it's on their cell phones, TV screens, or computers. How does seeing so many violent, terrifying images again and again affect them and their development? 
Yeah, that's interesting. After the World Trade Center attacks, uh, people were talking a lot about how young children were seeing the footage on the news over and over again, and they were actually thinking it was happening over and over again. They didn't realize that it was being replayed. Um, and as you can imagine, that would be terrifying to think that this is just constantly happening. Um, I do think that looking at all of these images and seeing all of this news skews our perspective about how likely it is to happen. People start to think that it's quite probable and likely that this will happen because it's taking up so much of their time in terms of what they're seeing and thinking about. And so that's a problem. We don't want people to be scared of low probability events. We do want people to be prepared, even though they're low probability events, but not necessarily scared and thinking that the chances that they'll be hurt is, are very high. I see. What about the inclination that many kids and now adults have to turn to social media and electronics rather than talking with those around them? We, we still need more research on this, but what we do know is that heavy social media use increases the risk of depression um, by something like 27%, some of our research here at CMI found. Um, so in general, it's better to talk with people face-to-face. You get more out of it. You get supportive language, which is the same as social media, but you also get a hug, you get empathy through facial expressions. There's just much more richness to interpersonal experiences that happen in person. Nice. Okay. And finally, we are seeing, you know, such strong, articulate teenagers in the media stand up for change now. How can these kids continue to advocate for themselves, yet keep an eye out for signs of PTSD and lingering trauma? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think that these these kids are amazing, and they're the generation to 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 do this, to bring about change. They've been through it. Uh, we haven't as much. Uh, those of us who are older than, than them, and um, so they've experienced it firsthand and have all sorts of intrinsic motivation to change things. And you know, everyone is so proud of them. And in addition to coping and healing by advocating and making change, they can also monitor their symptoms. So we don't diagnose post-traumatic stress disorder until at least one month after the trauma has ended. And that's because it's totally normal to experience all of the symptoms of PTSD in the immediate aftermath of a trauma. For this reason, we think of PTSD as being a disorder of recovery, which is really different than any other disorder where like depression or an anxiety disorder is just it's never really typical to experience those symptoms. PTSD is entirely normal. It's just not normal if it hasn't started to go away on its own. So the main things that kids want to keep an eye out for, and by kids, I mean these teenagers, is their functioning. Are they doing their best in school? Whatever that is. You know, if they're a B student, are they still getting Bs? Are they spending time with their friends? Or are they sort of isolating and declining social invitations? Are they still engaged in activities that they enjoy? And are they still spending time with their families and able to feel love for them? Those are the key areas of functioning for teenagers. And we want to make sure that there is an impairment in in those key areas. Another thing that they could keep an eye out for are re-experiencing symptoms. They will know if they're experiencing this because it's really uncomfortable, basically nightmares and thoughts and images about a traumatic event popping into your head and causing you a great deal of distress. If that persists for 
say four or five weeks, then they might want to consider getting treatment because treatment is highly effective and can really help them with those uncomfortable memories. Great. Great. Thank you so very much for lending your expertise. This was incredibly helpful. Sure. I really appreciate it. Happy to help. Thank you. Now, fifth grade teacher Julie Ballou joins us from Houston. Julie and her students embody the post-traumatic growth phenomenon that Dr. Howard described. Hi, Julie. Thank you so much for joining us. Of course. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to talk with you. So I have a few questions for you. Um, Let's start with, I know that you teach fifth grade language arts and social studies. Could you tell us about some of the many hats you wear in this role? I can. Um, I would say that teacher is becoming an increasingly smaller part of what I'm asked to do every day. Um, You know, kids come from all different backgrounds. And yes, my primary role is to teach them language arts and to teach them social studies. But I'm also being tasked with um, recognizing changes in personality and kind of um, being a liaison to the counselor. And I'm also um, keeping up with what's going on at home and how that might impact what's happening in school. I can imagine that there's more and more on your plate. When scary events are in the news, like the recent shootings in Florida, how do you dress them in the classroom? Do students naturally bring them up? Yeah, I would say the first thing that I do, um, which possibly has to be started at the beginning of the year, regardless of what's happening in the world, is creating a safe space for kids and letting them know that talking about things that are scaring them is always going to be okay, whether it's happening in school or outside of school. And so I think for me, um, my biggest goal is just to create that space and then be flexible enough with um, the curriculum and the content to allow time for kids to talk. Um, I'm very fortunate. The school that I'm in has a really big focus on social and emotional learning all throughout the year. And so we have dedicated time every week for what we call sharing circles. And so that structure is kind of built into the school. And so um, that's not to say that you couldn't do it if it wasn't built into your school. But I do feel very fortunate that the kids have been doing that since kindergarten. And so they kind of know um, what it means to, you know, gather as a community and say, hey, we have some something big that we need to talk about. Um, Let's take the opportunity and anybody who wants to talk can. You don't have to, but that's always an option. And so for me, that's been the biggest way um, that we've talked about issues is that sharing circle because it's already set up for us. And of course, things come up other times too that we don't physically move into a circle, but um, the kids kind of know, okay, this space is one that I can say what's on my heart and people aren't going to make fun of me for that. It's something that we're going to just give you an opportunity to air that out and see what conversation comes from it. Wow, that sounds like a terrific program. What are some of the concerns that your students have raised about being safe at school? Um, I think I am in an independent school this year and it, it, to look at it, it feels very safe. The whole school is gated. Um, there's passcodes on every gate to get in. You know, parents are required to wear a badge when they're on campus, but um, we do still have like lockdown drills. And I would say, really, the lockdown drills is where I see most of those fears bubble up. 
because the kids see it on the news and they talk about it. We talk about it in class, but until they're physically crouching in a corner while I'm locking the door and pushing some chairs in front of it, um, it doesn't feel as real to them. And so a lot of times the, the debrief that we have after those lockdown drills is where I see the most fear and tension kind of rise to the surface. And the biggest thing is the kids want to know, you know, if they want to get in here, they're going to get in here. And what do we do then? Um, and unfortunately, I don't always have an answer for that because they're right. If somebody does want to get in, they're going to find a way to get in. And all I can tell them is that my most important job is to keep you safe. And so I can promise I'm going to do whatever I have to do to keep you safe. And um, for us, we have a giant window and another window next to our door, but we're also on the second floor. And so we talk about that a lot, you know, maybe we're safer, but it also takes us longer to get out. You know, those little logistical things that come up for them. Um, I tend to see they want to know exactly what's going to happen, which I completely understand. I think that's natural. We're going to follow steps A, B, and C if something terrible were to happen when what really happens is we, we react in the moment and do whatever we have to do. I think we've seen that time and again, unfortunately, with um, these kinds of tragedies that happen at schools. But I do think that kids want to know that there's somebody in the building who's looking out for them that's going to keep them safe. And um, I have, I keep a stack of chairs. This is kind of a little aside, but I keep a stack of chairs in my classroom because I use flexible seating. So the kids sit on yoga balls and balance stools and, you know, folding chairs and things like that. So I have regular chairs if somebody should want them, but they're stacked in a corner. And so it just so happened that during our first lockdown drill, I shoved those against the door to make room for kids to sit in the corner. And later that afternoon, hours after the lockdown drill had happened, my afternoon class came in and they were like, Miss Ballou, we heard that your classroom's the safest because you have a barricade on your door. And it wasn't even something that I had done intentionally to block the door. It was truly just to make room for the kids to sit where they wouldn't be seen from the window. But the fact that not only kids recognize that as a step to keep them safe, but it was enough that they felt the need to talk about it with other classes, you know, at lunch or at PE, um, really showed me that they are watching in those drills. They are, they are watching to see what the adults are doing that's possibly going to keep them safe. Oh, my goodness. And how do you reassure parents as well? I'm sure they have their own fears, and then they're trying to address any fears that their children may have. Absolutely. And I... For me, I say the same thing to parents that I say to kids. You know, I just want you to know that I absolutely feel a responsibility to keep your children safe. And I want you to know that I would do for your children, hopefully what you would do for your children. You know, I would do whatever it takes in that moment to keep them safe um, because I do feel like they're my kids. You know, when they're in my charge, they're for a year, they possibly spend more waking hours with me than they do with any other adult. And so I, I really do feel like I would take whatever steps I needed to take if, God forbid, that situation were to arise at our school. And I think just continuing to say that to parents and letting them hear me say that over and over again so that they know that I mean it, um, that's what any parent wants is they, they want somebody who would do what they would do for their kids, I think. We should all be so lucky to have a teacher like you, Julie. My goodness. 
Hurricane Harvey devastated your city last August, and you wrote about how you rebuilt a sense of community in your classroom afterwards. Could you tell us about that? And how are your students and the city doing now? You know, that project has morphed into something in my school community that I could never have anticipated. When we started school, we start school in uh, mid to late August in Texas. And so we had been in school for two days when Harvey hit. <laughs> and then um, you don't really have time in two days. You, you make efforts, but you don't really have time in two days to build a really strong classroom community, especially when, like me, you're new to a school. So the kids knew each other, but they certainly didn't know me. And then we ended up missing a week and a half, which my school is an independent school, so we were on the short end. We were one of the first schools in the whole city of Houston to go back to school, mostly because we didn't have we don't have buses, so we didn't have bus routes to have to clear and make sure kids could get to school safely. Most of the kids live very close. And so... Um, we went back to school and I was so nervous that morning. I, I was nervous because I was thinking about, one, all of the first days of school, important curricular things we had missed, all of the fabulous getting to know you activities that I had planned that I wasn't sure we had time for anymore. And I, had, I, I just had no idea what the kids had seen and what they had experienced in terms of the level of devastation in the days that they were not with me. And um, so I was actually getting ready for school that morning and the song Rise Up by Andrew Day came on, it's on my morning playlist. It's just kind of my general get me ready for the day. And I thought, gosh, I wonder if my kids have heard this. This song is perfect. It's all about we're going to continue to rise up. It doesn't, it, it doesn't matter how broken we are or how tired we are. We're going to rise up. And I thought, you know, they're young, but I think that they would hear the message in this song and, and be able to relate it to what they'd experienced in the days that they haven't been with me. And so I talked to um, my team teacher who teaches the other half of fifth grade language arts. And I said, okay, this is what I'm doing this morning. I don't really have a good plan for it. I'm going to play the song for the kids, and we're going to talk about it and see what happens. She was like, okay, we'll try that too. And so I did. I, I pulled the kids to our sharing circle format, and I said, guys, I know that we have so much to talk about. We've all seen so many different things over the last nine days that we haven't been together, and I want to hear all of them. So I want us to start by listening to this song, and I played, um, I was able to find a lyric video so they could read the words while they were listening. And I played that for them. And then before I gave them time to talk about it, I asked them to either write or draw a picture or some kids could do both um, because I wasn't sure. Again, I didn't know these kids that well at the time. I wasn't sure who would feel comfortable talking. Um, and so I wanted to give them that kind of written rehearsal time before they were asked to share into the group. And the papers that I got back <laughs> blew me away. I couldn't, I couldn't believe what 10 and 11-year-olds were capable of verbalizing and writing in it, when the tragedy was so fresh. I mean, some of them weren't even home yet because their homes were flooded, and they were able to talk about how it's our responsibility to rise up and find somebody who has it worse than we do and to go help them. And I, I couldn't believe how they were able to see what I thought I was going to have to teach them, they already knew. 
They already knew it. They knew it instinctively. They knew it because their parents had modeled it, because they'd seen it in the community. Thankfully, we had some really great news coverage, so they weren't just seeing. They were also seeing all of these helpers on the news. And so they had these amazing ideas about what it meant to rise up and help other people when something terrible happens. And so it really framed the way we were able to talk about Hurricane Harvey. And it also... Um, it just, it brought us so much closer together than any getting to know you activity I had planned could ever have done. My school counselor got wind of it. We showed it to her, you know, we were blown away. And she talked to um, the middle school counselor and the upper school counselor. I'm at a K-12 campus. And they decided it was going to be a year-long theme for our school. And so the middle schoolers and the upper school kids also listened to the song and wrote in response to it. And then we actually had, um, we have a dance troupe that decided to choreograph a dance to this. And we have um, a choir group that sang a rendition. And we had this whole school gathering just a few weeks ago that was centered around this theme of Rise Up. I had no idea. I knew that they were, that they, you know, the wheels were turning and they were making it a bigger thing. But, you know, I'm just teaching ancient Egypt and, and closing my door every day and doing my job. I had no idea what a big, what a big thing it was turning into for our school. And they produced a video and the art teacher had them create a mural about rising up. I mean, it's just been the most amazing thing and the biggest way to set a positive tone in the wake of truly the most devastating natural event that that Houston has ever had to deal with. And I think that um, it has really helped not only those kids who personally at home were dealing with being displaced or, you know, having to muck out their houses and, and replace things that, that they never thought they'd have to replace. But we also have a lot of kids who, like me, um, weren't personally impacted by the floodwaters. And it's the strangest case of survivor's guilt. <laughs> I don't know another way to explain it, but it's just when you have personally witnessed, you know, a helicopter pulling people out of your neighborhood and dropping them onto the highway so that they can get out of, out of their flooded homes um, and all of your stuff is dry, there's this sense of um, what should I have done differently how am I going to be different in the world based on what I've seen and what my neighbors have experienced? And I think it's given us such an opportunity to frame our year in that way. We talk about it all the time. We come back to that song all the time or even just the words rise up. You know, when something happens, okay, how are we going to rise up from this? And when we talked about um, Parkland and the, and the shooting and how scary that is, we've also talked about those students and how Rise Up has been a big theme for them, obviously. I don't know if they listen to the song, but it, it certainly is something that they're doing as well. So we keep coming back to it. And who knew that, you know, five minutes before I got to school would have turned into something that's been so powerful for our classroom and also our whole school community. Oh, it's so inspiring to hear this younger generation. They're really giving the rest of us hope. Absolutely. Absolutely. We do know, though, that many children live with chronic stress, whether it's because of violence in their homes or neighborhoods or poverty, racism, the aftermath of a natural disaster. What signs do you look for in your students to make sure that they're not suffering alone? Um, I think the biggest thing that I look for is um, changes, whether it's when a routinely 
loud student is no longer loud or when a student who's usually more reserved suddenly is. Um, I really keep my eye on that. And then I also keep my eye on um, when the whole class is engaged in something and I have one or two who are not. I'm always trying to figure out why because I think that, um, gosh, I wish I knew the author of the quote, but you know, I heard early in my teaching career, I heard a quote that said, um, nine out of 10 times, the reason behind a misbehavior in the classroom won't make you mad, it'll break your heart. And I, I always come back to that and I always think about, you know, if this child is acting differently, whether it's that they're acting out or they're just completely disengaged or they're tired or, you know, they're not playing with anybody at recess, um, why is that? And I don't think it's because this child is trying to be obstinate. I don't think it's because they don't care and they just want to sleep in my class. I think there's probably a bigger reason there and I'm always kind of hunting for that bigger reason. Um, I think that letting kids know that I am watching and I notice is a big responsibility because I want them to know that they don't have to necessarily um, cry out and I'm still going to notice. I want them to know that I'm watching closely enough that that I'm going to notice even small changes. And it's hard because, again, we're, we're trying to teach them to love reading and to love writing and to, you know, write the, the next great American novel. But I'm also trying to make sure that their behavior is showing me that everything's okay when most of the time I know that it's not. Right. Well, thank you so very much for talking with us. Absolutely. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you. We really appreciate all that you're doing for your students and your school community, and we wish you the best. Thank you so much. Thanks again to our guests for joining us, and thank you for listening. For links to Scholastic's classroom resources surrounding trauma and violence, check the show notes or go to scholasticreads.com. Don't miss an episode of Scholastic Reads. Find us and subscribe in your favorite podcast app, and each episode will automatically be delivered to your phone. Special thanks to producer Emily Morrow, sound engineers Daniel Jordan and Chris Johnson, and music composer Lucas Elliott Eberl. I'm Suzanne McCabe. We look forward to sharing more Scholastic Reads next time.